If hope is the engine of the soul, then duty is the navigator, and love is the fuel. Welcome you to another episode of Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. I'm Ryan Mazzocco, and joining me as always is... Do silicone can cry? Do computers can weep? What are you doing? Do silicone can cry? Dude, do computers can weep? What's wrong with you? What is the binary code for tears? What is the binary code for tears? Alright, Ethan, can, can, we just, can we just get this show started? Access denied. Access denied. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Command code authorization, LASIK 2020, initiate self-destruct. Whoa, 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 dude. I, I, I'm okay. I'm, I, I can be cool. Are you sure? I can be cool. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm were, just, just just playing with you, man. You were really creeping me out just there. Just playing with you. Just, okay. just playing. Do it again, I'm going to erase you. Understood. Anyway, so welcome back to Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. I'm Ryan Mazzocco, and with me is... Sound in mind and body. I'm Ethan Maestri. Welcome back, Ethan. Glad to be here. And this week is episode 12, The Mathematics of Tears. Ethan, what do we need to know about this episode? Uh, A little bit of backstory on it. The story itself is actually uh, written by Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz, the duo that we've seen in several episodes already. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I found interesting about this episode is, is the soundtrack. Uh, we have uh, uh-huh. we yeah. have some very operatic music, mm-hmm. and so this week uh, we got to see or hear rather uh, music by Richard Wagner, and uh, he is a famous composer, what most widely known for his operas. Um, he was born in 1813 in Leipzig, Germany, and he died in 1883 at the age of 63 in Italy. Hmm. His operas, particularly uh, Die Valkyrie. Mm-hmm. was a, a particular favorite amongst uh, many people, including Adolf Hitler. Huh. Yeah. Uh, so Wagner has been around for, for about 160 years, somehow uh-huh. like that. Uh, a very, very popular, very widely known composer. Uh, and then here in this episode, we get a sampling of The Flying Dutchman or Der Fliegen Hollander. Okay. Yeah. As the actress uh, brings out there. It was written in May of 1840, but wasn't performed until, I believe, 1843 was its first actual uh, performance on stage. And this is just one of many uh, works that he has done. And according to uh, the Internet Movie Database, he has over 973 credits um, for television and movies, both. So very widely known. If you don't know this piece that uh, we hear uh, during the episode, you've no doubt heard something by Wagner, and uh, for that reason, he's he's been widely popular. He passed in 1883, but uh, his popularity really didn't catch on until after his death. Oh. People were rediscovering his operas and, and music. All too often that happens to musicians. Yes, this is true. Uh, also, we have the actress Monica Scher, who played Lieutenant Jill Pierce. Uh, this is a Canadian-born actress. Uh, she's done many TV and, and films throughout the 90s, and uh, her work on Andromeda 
was among the last of the credits that she has. Um, she's since uh, since 2005 has has kind of disappeared out of the public eye, um, but but she is still with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, she's a mother um, and, and has other pursuits that she's uh, she's going after. Um, but it is nice to see her in this episode. And then we had several actors uh, that played uh, Captain Warwick. That was Douglas O'Keefe. Um, Nathaniel Devereaux, he played Dutch, the engineer uh, aboard the Pax Magellanic. Thomas Milborn Jr. was the ensign that uh, wows Dylan in the episode. Uh, these were all very prolific Canadian television uh, and, and film actors uh, that were very busy throughout the 80s, 90s, and, and up to this point as well. And then the, the Pax Magellanic avatar, the dance scene, <laughs> the dancer, mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about if you've seen the Jack episode. Jack Sparrow about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, that was played by Lee Erdman and has uh, many film credits. Uh, of note, though, I, I, I picked out one that I was not seen but familiar with, and that was the, the dance movie Honey, starring Jessica Alba. Um so has a has a credit for that. That that was uh, she played the 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 actual on screen avatar uh, that did the gyrating and the dancing around. Mm-hmm. But then the voice was actually done by Janice Jod, and she's a very popular voice actor. Has done a lot of work, anything from anime to animated X Men, uh, My Little Pony. <laughs> we we okay, mentioned yeah. uh, John Delancey last mm-hmm. week being in My Little Pony, which you didn't put the credit on the show. Yeah, I totally forgot. Oh, well. I'm sorry about that. Um, but for Andromeda, she's done a lot of voice work as well. And she she was even the voice for Refractions of Dawn in the, the pilot episode that we saw. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I remember you saying we were going to hear more of her. Yep. And so now, now we know. And interestingly enough, she was, I didn't recognize it at the time, uh, but going back and looking, uh, she was actually the secretary in A Rose in the Ashes. The annoying okay. secretary. Okay. Yeah. Really? That was actually her under the, the garment there. Okay. And, and obviously it was her voice. And then she's going to come back for many other seasons of Andromeda uh, for, for some more voice work. Uh-huh. So uh, we'll look forward to seeing more from Janice Jaude. Okay. But uh, for this episode, she's the the Avatar's voice uh, inside of cyberspace or whatever there is during the interface with the uh, Pax Magellanics mm-hmm. uh, AI. And that's all I've got. I got to say, that was actually some trivia that was more interesting um, than it usually is. Not that your trivia is not interesting, um, but yeah, there was some pretty good stuff there this week. I got to I gotta, well, thank you. Gotta hand that I'm, to you. I try. Hey, Ethan, um, you still got some voice left? I do. Because uh, I think you've also got a, a summary to tell us about what happened in this episode, don't you? I sure do. Okay. Well, Ethan, why don't you tell us what happened? We begin this episode with Harper relating a letter from Trance. Our little purple animal lover is going to be away for a time watching fish spawn on Ornitho, something that Harper laments he would know little about. Dylan is perturbed by the situation, and it's not just trance. Between Rev Bim's sabbaticals and Harper's surfing obsession, the crew is treating the Andromeda less like a warship and something more akin to the QE2. Becca heatedly points out that things were run differently on the Maru. Their mission before Dylan came along was simply to survive, and so far they've done a fair job with that. She feels that they deserve a break now and then, though Dylan doesn't agree. In his quarters, Dylan complains to Rami about the situation with the crew, and Rami explains to him that they have good hearts, and that the Commonwealth wasn't built in a day. 
Becca enters and gives Dylan a list of possible derelict high guard ships that she lifted from Gerontix. Remember that guy? I wonder what he's up to now. Probably his 670th game of solitaire while riding around in his escape pod. In any case, the list assuages Dylan's ire with Becca. Time to load up the mystery machine, gang, as we head to Herodotus to look for the ghost ship of Tau Ceti VI. It is rumored that passing ships in the system are attacked by a ghost ship that glitters of gold. We arrive at Herodotus, but curiously, no planet, just a vast asteroid field. Then they detect an odd transmission that simply repeats, no tears. Harper is particularly freaked out by this, and as they trace the signal to its source, they find a gold-plated, glorious heritage-class cruiser, the Pax Magellanic. Rami explains that the Pax Magellanic is a sister ship, though older, one of the first of her line, and has a storied past as well. The crew takes the Maru and boards the Magellanic in hopes of salvaging her. It certainly looks like Andromeda. Everything appears to be functioning, and sure enough, its defensive systems kick in and attack the crew. Dylan can't override it, but one of the crew of the Magellanic does, Lieutenant Jill Pierce, and she is happy to see a surviving member of High Guard. The Andromeda crew are shocked to see any surviving crew at all, much less surviving and not having aged a day in over 300 years. Lieutenant Pierce explains that Captain Warwick is dead, destroyed by the Nietzschean weapon that destroyed the planet. The weapon had an interesting side effect in that it was prevented it has prevented their aging, so long as they don't leave the system, which isn't a problem because the Magellanic slipstream is irreparable. It would take them over 500 years to get to the next system. While examining the state of the ship, Harper explains that the ship's AI is in a state that's akin to a coma. Dylan explains that if they can't fix the AI, they'll have to erase it and start over. Rami brings up the fact that the AI will have sensitive information contained within its memory and cannot be allowed to fall into the wrong hands, to which Dylan assures her that he won't let that happen. In the meantime, Dylan gets a kick out of the crew of the Pax Magellanic and their attention to detail and protocol. Rami interfaces with the Pax Magellanic and finds a hot mess of dancing, babbling, crazy AI. Aboard the Andromeda, Rev Bim is not having any luck in identifying the Pax Magellanic's fountain of youth. Everyone on the Andromeda is aging normally. The asteroids are not causing the effect that the Pax Magellanic crew claims to have on them. Two, Tyr speaks with Dylan and points out that the Nietzscheans don't destroy habitable planets. Why destroy what you can conquer and exploit? Am I right? Additionally, there is no evidence of 2AS4G, an element used in a Maxim charge, the type of weapon that would be needed to destroy a planet. The Lieutenant and the Pax Magellanic may not be on the up and up. Back on the Pax, Harper and the Pax Magellanic's engineer, Dutch, work to unseal the engine room while Becca and Rami discuss the problems of family. And aboard the Pax, Dylan and Lieutenant Pierce begin their officer's dinner together. Rami tries to access the AI again, and does so, discovering that the lieutenant, in fact, may be responsible for the planet's destruction. Harper and Dutch get inside the engine room, only to discover no engine. That might be the problem right there. Dutch seems puzzled, but Harper explains that it isn't puzzling at all. The core would have to have been forcibly ejected, much like the way Dutch suddenly tries to eject Harper from the railing. Everything begins to hit the fan. Suddenly, the whole crew of the Pax Magellanic is chasing the Andromeda crew. Rami 
interfaces with Pax Magellanix AI again and herself comes under attack. Harper initiates a system diagnostic that shuts down all of the ship's android crew, including the crew of the Pax Magellanic. They are all androids. They realize Rami is interfaced still and may be in danger as well, so they escape to the Maru and rescue her, while being chased by the awakening android army. Rev reveals that Jill Pierce isn't on the crew manifest, and Dylan begins to understand. Jill is the Pax Magellanic, the ship made flesh. Dylan begins to initiate a memory wipe, but Rami stops him. This is still an incident that needs to be investigated. Dylan agrees, and so he dons some virtual reality goggles and interfaces the ship with her. Meanwhile, the android crew is trying to board the Maru while Dylan and Rami discover the Pax Magellanic's problem. She was in love with Captain Warwick, and when he ordered her to self-destruct to prevent her capture, the AI cracked and destroyed the planet. She was left alone. The real crew all died on the planet, so she recreated the crew members that she liked as androids. Aboard the Maru, the Pax Magellanic crew break in, and with Wagner playing in the background, Tyr gets to do his thing, dispatching a great number of androids, the most fun he's had in about six months, as he claims. Dylan and Rami can't fix the AI, and they break the interface. The Maru escapes the Pax, and once back on board Andromeda, Dylan has missiles fired to try and disable the Pax, but the ship lowers its defenses and allows itself to be destroyed, ending a long nightmare for the AI. In the aftermath, Dylan and Becca make nice. Dylan has learned a valuable lesson. He has a crew that he can depend on. Rami, though, is struggling with her feelings and how to cry. She wonders if AIs have souls. Rev explains that anything that loves has a soul. He asks her, have you ever loved? And Rami explains that she's seen what love can do. It can drive you crazy. Rev then reveals to her that that is what tears are for. The end. Wow, Ethan, I have got to tell you, that was, uh, eh, it was kind of a lengthy summary, but I don't think you've aged a day through the whole thing. I feel a little older, but I appreciate the compliment. <clears throat> okay, so one thing that I think I learned from this episode is that uh, if you know an AI, then you want to stay on their good side, because if they like you, then they'll recreate you as an android after you die. That's an interesting thought. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that mm -hmm. way. Make nice with the android, treat them well. Mm-hmm. And you get to live forever <laughs> as an android. Uh, that's cool. Okay, let's talk about androids for a second. Okay. The androids that are wandering around on the Andromeda, uh -huh. when they wander past screen within earshot, mm -hmm. they make a sound, right? Uh, we, we've seen that over the course of 12 episodes. Anytime there's an android in the room, mm -hmm. you hear the whir of the servos and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why did that change for this episode? Why, when you had, when you thought they were humans, there was no servos sound? But then, once you realize that they're androids, now you hear the servo whine. Why did that happen? Hmm. I guess the only way that I can think of to explain it, do you ever um, turn your TV on mute? You know there is no sound coming out of it, but you swear you can hear it. <laughs> 
I haven't done that since I was a kid, but yeah. But you know, I, what, I know, I'm I know what you're about. talking about. Okay. Yeah. If you're in the other room, you don't know the TV's on, you don't swear that you can hear it. Okay. But when you know the TV's on, but it's on mute, you just, you feel like you can hear it. So maybe what we're looking at is the perspective of the humans. Um, they don't know that they're androids, so they don't hear the servo noise. Now they know they're androids, so they're perceiving that they hear the servo noises. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 that's a, for this episode, that is the only explanation that we're going to get, I think, here. Either that or maybe um, androids are made, they can suppress that noise, but it's hard on them. So okay. maybe the whole time that the Andromeda crew is there, they're all like, they're really concentrating. They're like, guys, <laughs> don't make the noise. You know what I'm talking about. Don't do it. You know? And then once once everything is all exposed and out in the open, they're like, okay, you know what? Just let her rip. Yeah, it just seemed like all of a sudden, every one of them, when they woke up from their nap, suddenly needed a WD-40 treatment. <laughs> it would. It just sounded ridiculous. It, it's, it's not there, it's not there, and now it's everywhere. <laughs> Everybody running through the holidays. Anyway, that was just an observation I made. Hey, Ryan, how can you tell a crazy AI? How? Interpretive dance. <laughs> What, how about that? What, what about that avatar? Yeah, that man. It was uh, it was elegant and creepy, and just just all those things. Man, it was weird. Here's the thing: was it helping to tell the story, or was it detracting from the story? <laughs> that that was the. I, and I know it's detracting, at least in my mind, because that's the first thing that popped into my head is is I don't see, I don't see the the gyrating and the dancing as being part of. The AI's mental state. Mm -hmm. All I see is dancing and gyrating, and, and how out of place it felt like, at least, and in, in the way it was being expressed. I understand what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. This is an unstable. This is an AI in an unstable state, mm -hmm. and, and that was kind of an outward sign of that. But I don't know. It just it was distracting. Yeah, you know, from from my perspective, anyway. Well, just that whole world. Is just very strange to me from the very first time we saw it on this show. Uh, the first time Harper tapped into Andromeda. Um, you know, just to see that huge, it's just like a a virtual world full of uh, circuits and, and pathways and all these things. It's just, you know, it was just, it's just very strange. Um, and then it's just the imagery that you see in there, all of a sudden you see the hologram or an image, it looks like a hologram. Of, of Andromeda, in this case, we see that, that strange image of uh, the Magellanic. So, I guess I've, I've never really been sure what to think of any of the imagery in that, when you're in that, in that interface, in that system. Yeah. But, I will grant you, the whole thing was a little weird. Access denied. <laughs> Access denied. Seems like I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, here's the thing we finally found out uh, for sure. And I think in the past episodes we had discussed whether or not we knew this or not. Um, now we know that the Andromeda is a glorious heritage class cruiser starship. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. Now we have a class to put this uh, this Andromeda starship. I, I into. think I, I think I mentioned it on a previous episode. That's mm -hmm. that's a 
that's kind of a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. Is I like to know what class of ships we're we're, we're in or mm-hmm. we're looking at and or we're talking about. And so yeah, you're right. So we hear the the term the glorious heritage class, and I, I don't know that that seems to it, it seems to to make the ship more real and mm-hmm. more likable, in my opinion. What about the gold plating, though? I had a thought about that. It's the Pax Magellanic was an earlier or one of the first ships of this line, mm-hmm. this glorious heritage class. Mm-hmm. So is the is the is the gold skin part of the? Does that go on the flagship? Does that go on the the first one to roll off the assembly line? Is that something special that they do for it, or was that just do do all of these have a different you know something that identifies it as being distinct? Maybe they started out uh, being gold-plated, and then they decided that they needed to start cutting some costs. <laughs> so they just went with the stealth black, then, yeah, or gray. Yeah. yeah. Huh. It's like, you know, the gold may be a little much. It's in space, so can't really see it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's that like when you show up, roll up to a planet that's, you know, poverty-stricken? <laughs> it's like, we'd like to help you, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> We've got more ships to plate, you know. It's, <laughs> and it's hard to get anyone to feel sorry for you, too, if you're needing help. Like, True. Yeah, you're in a gold-plated starship. <laughs> I mean, you think <laughs> you think gold rims are, are something. I mean, try a whole starship. A whole starship. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of gold. Can you imagine somebody in yeah in one of these other, these outlying, anyone on the outside looking and seeing what's going on with the Nietzscheans versus the Commonwealth? Be like, and they want us to be their allies? <laughs> Those arrogant so-and-sos, they go yeah. plate their ships. Well, of course we're not going to ally with them. So, Tyr does his uh, his magic listening from another room and appearing on screen trick again. He does? Yeah. I miss this. Yeah, he, he did it again. When they're talking about erasing the, the AI, and Rami makes her case for why they shouldn't, all of a sudden, He's Tyr in the pops up on the screen. He says... You know, I can't believe you're talking about this. Really? Yeah. Okay, so wow, Tier and the NSA, man, they're just they're just they've got <laughs> ears everywhere, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> no, this is odd. I didn't even catch that. Because it happens so often. I mean it's just like it's just, it's just Tier's always listening and just ready to push that button to show up on the screen anytime. You know? Well, so and it it's always well, it's always on the bridge of the ship, right? Yeah, this was on the Maru. The Maru's bridge. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But he's always just wherever he happens to be. He can be in the weight room, in his quarters. I guess um, in all great Neptune's ocean, he was just right outside the hall. You know? Yeah. Uh, he's just, he's always listening. Yeah. Um, That's an interesting thought. I, you know, okay, yeah, so we have the precedent. So from virtually anywhere, Tyr knows what's going on. He can become part of any conversation that he deems important for him right to to chime in on yeah <laughs> that can be dangerous i think so yeah <laughs> does anybody else have that privilege yeah uh, that's, nobody else is interrupting the way he is mm-hmm. hmm. interesting is it a nietzschean thing i don't know he, is he that paranoid that he's bugged the whole ship and the maru <laughs> the amazing tear anasazi <laughs> well at least we know he has perfect hearing yeah. Genetically perfect hearing. Yeah. We had a name mentioned. Skyfalls and Thunder 
Yeah. I'm guessing that's got to be a Than, right? Yeah. I, I, I actually, I wrote that down. General mm. Skyfalls and Thunder, Than, question mark. I don't think there's a question mark look about at, it. Look at my paper. <laughs> yeah, you too. <laughs> Skyfalls and Thunder, Than, question mark. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Brilliant. That is brilliant. Yeah, so I, I think we're on the same page with that. It couldn't be anything but a, a Than. Mm-hmm. So, um so yeah, Dylan and Jill are both reminiscing about taking this class in in I guess military school, whatever it was, of uh, of the of the generals, you know, whatever the general was talking about. How does that work? I guess the AI has all of that programmed into it. You know what? There's. I think we're going to get into this. Okay. Um, put a pin in that. Okay. Okay, because I think that's one of the things that we're going to come back to. But there's another thing I want to I want to get to before we talk about that. Um, uh, the VR goggles. <laughs> the, you, you don't have wireless VR goggles. <laughs> Three thousand years in the future. No. I not, mean, not only are they wireless, that was ghetto wiring. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Multicolored, twisted around each other. Uh, that was some. That was ghetto-tastic, as a friend of mine would refer to it. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was interesting that they would have wired goggles that way that he puts on. Well, considering that uh, all Rami has to do is just touch the interface that, with her hand. That was another thing, yeah. Yeah, just holds the hand down there. Mm-hmm. And, and what was the deal with that? Um, when she is being attacked, when the, the, the Pax Magellanic is sending a power surge through it, it just locks her hand to the... Because did you notice when Dylan runs in... Okay, how does let's think about the physics of this. Okay. He runs in, he puts his hand on her, mm-hmm. nothing, anything, but he reaches down and pulls her hand off, and suddenly he's shot. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is a conduit, right? The whole <laughs> android would be the conduit. So the moment he touches Rami, mm-hmm. he's locked in there too. I would have thought, but no, well, maybe there's some sort of insulators in between her hand and her shoulder or there, something. I guess there so. Has he, to be. you know, touches her above the elbow. He's fine. But uh, down there, that's all just conductor down there. Yeah. Uh, down on the forearm. That's just, that's all superconductors, and he's going to get zapped. So, it's the joints. There's, there's silicone joints or I guess something. So, in there. Yeah. So, yeah. But, so, there's a lesson. If you're near an android that's being electrocuted, go for yeah. the shoulders. Yeah. Go for the shoulders. Exactly. So, th- this is this is another point. It's, it's really not important, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Talking about the uh, the crew dynamic. Um, which is kind of how the, the the show starts out, showing the the difference between um, Dylan's way of doing things and well everyone else's way of doing things. Um, there was one little part in there that I thought was kind of interesting when when Lieutenant Pierce is trying to set up that uh, dinner with Dylan. She she recommends have dinner at uh, twenty one hundred hours. Becca says, uh, "Why don't you do it at eight o'clock?" Um, it's such a, a subtle thing, but I picked up on it. Here you have Jill and Dylan, um, even in a what is supposed to be presumably a social setting, still very military, very in, rigid in their yeah. in their in their communication with each other. Yeah, and then Becca, who is right there in the middle of it, eight o'clock. What's this twenty one hundred business? <laughs> yeah, let's roll it back to eight o'clock. Yeah, <laughs> and, and then she—I'm not sure how to take this because I caught that too. Twenty one hundred uh-huh. versus eight o'clock, and then she also mentions it's a blood sugar thing, mm-hmm. which I know that's tongue in cheek and whatnot. But Jill immediately is like, "Oh, you need food," 
had you know, ensign take her down to the mess have some Antares cowpies or whatever that was that they said <laughs> which was kind of an odd, <laughs> an odd recommendation because did you did you catch the uh, mm, you know there the, she does at the end of it and Dylan's like they're good <laughs> I, I I almost think we're getting a glimpse into an inside joke that's about to be sprung on Becca uh-huh. and I would love to have seen the scenes where that plays out. Unfortunately, I, we don't know, really know if that's happening or not. But I don't know. That just that whole sequence was kind of unusual. Well, hey, to the listeners, we'd appreciate a fanfic on that. Let's see what happens to Becca in the mess hall. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> drive back the night, listeners. That is your assignment there for you this go. week. <laughs> you know, you mentioned there about uh, crew interaction mm-hmm. and how we start off with Becca and and Dylan. And obviously, they have that heated discussion at the very beginning. It's interesting, though. I I kind of clued in on Tyr and Dylan on their interaction together. Tyr comes to Dylan and says, "Hey, you need to be asking the right kind of question," and and kind of helps Dylan clue in on the fact that the Nietzscheans wouldn't have attacked the planet the way it's the way it's being described. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting here. You know, Dylan is usually the one that's that's helping Tyr to reason things out. And here we kind of have an interesting role reversal and Tyr is usually ready to pounce on the obvious. Yeah. Uh, um, but here it's Dylan that's having to be explained. Dylan's typically the voice of reason, but here he's having it explained to him. You need to dig a little bit deeper into this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting how it really shows how Dylan is kind of blindsided, starstruck. Or I don't know how you want to describe it. He's, he's, more forgiving toward these military types mm-hmm. that they're dealing with. And he's really more willing to kind of gloss things over. Mm-hmm. So he trusts them. Mm-hmm. The, this is a group of people that he trusts. And, and, you know, we're only a few months removed from that time when he was directly, you know, overseeing uh, military types like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I just thought that was interesting how it's, it's tier now that's coming to Dylan. Whereas typically we've seen Dylan go to tier to help him to to deal with the situation or reason on a situation. But now it's Tyr that's actually admonishing Dylan to, you know, look at this. Don't just take it at face value. Look at it a little bit deeper uh, and then draw your own conclusions about the matter. And I thought it was really cool that Tyr got that moment to uh, to be that voice of reason. Whereas, you know, typically he's and ready mm-hmm. to charge off in <laughs> guns a blazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like um, it seems like we see that. Really a lot. It seems like any of these characters at any given time can kind of become that to whoever it is that's that's having the problem. Yeah. Uh, we see Rev does it a lot. Uh, Trance does it. And now we see Tyr doing it. And, of course, Dylan, um, he does it all the time himself. So, you know, you've, you've kind of got all of these different parts. They all think and work differently. Um, but they all have a different perspective. They're all coming at it from a different angle. Um, when Dylan is is ready to accuse the Nietzscheans of these, say like in, in Angel, Dark, Demon, Bright, when um, when Dylan had a certain assumption about the Nietzscheans, um, Tyr had a different story. So th- this kind of isn't the first time, but this is a lot more in your face. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's that's kind of why I, I think I caught on to it. Mm-hmm. Is it. It seemed a bit more, you know, front and center, like you're like you saying there. Yeah. But I, I, what I like about it, it, it and 
you were starting to go into it a little bit deeper. Okay, so we have the interaction with Becca and Dylan, mm-hmm. uh, and how they kind of have to come to terms with the, each other's. I, is it a command style? I guess. Is, yeah. Is it a command? Yeah. yeah. So they have to come to terms with that. You see them throughout the, the course of the show arrive at a amicable, you know, understanding. Uh, you have Tyr and Dylan here in this case. We've time after time seen Rev and here again at the end of the show, he gets to go to Rami and, and help her mm-hmm. with deal with her issues. I, I think it's great that we have a show that, that has that ability to take different characters and then they, they support one another. Right. Uh, almost equally. Right. Um, it doesn't seem like we get that in some other television shows, like certainly like a, a Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You know, Kirk was everybody defers to Kirk, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and there was only a choice few that either Spock or Bones that would be able to go to him and, and kind of help him right. to deal with situations. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, it was it was much more militaristic mm-hmm. in that portrayal. Here we have on the Andromeda. A crew, yes, but it does seem to interact and function more like a family. Because you think about it, when you're in the middle of something, a problem for you, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard sometimes to really see the obvious. Yeah. And then you, it's always great to have a family member or a friend to come to you and say, hey, you know, here's what's what. And then... And that's what you feel like you're getting here mm-hmm. on the Andromeda. Is it's it's more like family or friends helping each other out, and yeah. less like military, like Dylan thinks he wants. <laughs> yeah, at times, yeah. you know. And so I it, I think it was really cool how they they portrayed that that familial setting mm-hmm. or that friendly setting amongst the crew members. I'm glad that you brought up the uh, the Kirk Spock McCoy thing because I was thinking the same thing, um, because. When you think about, um, I guess, you know, classic sci-fi, the the guy in charge who has his advisors, that's kind of what you think about. And you think about Spock and Bones, they both have their very distinct styles in the way that they advise Kirk. And then in the end, well, Kirk's the one that makes the, makes the decision. Um, in this, it there is no one or two people... That are there. It seemed like at the beginning, he kind of felt like it was going to be Rev Bim. Yeah. That was going to be there for everybody. He was going to be the one giving the advice to everybody, particularly... C- Counselor Bim. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, particularly Dylan, since he's the one in command. You, right. You, you kind of get that idea. But, you know, is you know, I hate to say it again, but it's just, that's just what we're really seeing now is this is, this is falling on everybody. And I think it's because of the fact that they're not all high guard. They're not, um, Commonwealth, you know, they're, um, even the other crew, they're on, they're not all from the same place. Right. You got Tyr who came on as a mercenary and just kind of fell into this. He's not part of either one of them. Right. But he's becoming part of the whole thing. And he's looking out for his own survival. So, of course, he's going to give the best advice that he can to Dylan because he knows that Dylan has to make the choice. And he wants him to make the choice that's going to ensure his survival. Yeah. Well, I, I, I feel like we would be remi- amiss, remiss to, to ignore what's happened here between Captain Womack. And Jill, mm-hmm. or Lieutenant Pierce, yeah, or the AI. <laughs> uh, so we have this situation where we've talked about it. You know, the Andromeda has demonstrated 
perhaps an affinity mm-hmm. more than just professional mm-hmm. for her captain. Right. And here we've seen an occasion where it went to that that next level, mm-hmm. and and the the ship's avatar made flesh, Jill, uh, and the captain became romantically involved with one another, mm-hmm. and that has led to some serious problems. Um, the captain perishes. There was really nothing that could be done for him, but at the point where he has to issue an executive order. Uh, and and order this ship to do something that that really no person would would really ever accept an order to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. But there's so much at stake, you know. The, the the ship with all of its information, its intelligence, and everything cannot be allowed to fall into the wrong hands. And so the captain's trapped on the planet. There's no crew there to pilot the ship or to maintain it. So the only option left to him is I have to tell the AI that I have been romantically involved with to kill herself. Mm-hmm. Now the captain didn't really appear to be, we don't know what's going on on the inside, mm-hmm. but he didn't appear to be terribly broken up about it, mainly because he probably knows they're both going to perish yeah. regardless anyhow. But now he's lost control of his ship because he fell in love with the ship mm-hmm. <laughs> or with the, the artificial intelligence at the very least. I think that it was a really interesting dynamic, especially when we're seeing these things, these little hints dropped that Andromeda may have an attraction for Dylan mm-hmm. and that there's the possibility that that type of a relationship could happen. We, we've had questions as to whether or not it could happen. It did happen mm-hmm. on this ship 300 years in the past and uh, it went disastrously. <laughs> right. I think that was a really interesting, uh, the way that was portrayed. Yeah. And we haven't seen very much of that from from Rami since the very beginning it was there was a little bit more of it in the first uh what it was at the start of the second and third episode when we really saw a lot of it um and d minus zero of course there was the caressing his cheek on the picture some weird stuff going on but but they've really gone away from that and yeah. it seems like their relationship has become much more professional true um so here's the question I yeah. have, though. Uh, at the end, Rami is is obviously wrestling with her emotions mm-hmm. over the situation. You have to understand some of it is regarding the the uh, her sister, yeah, Maggie. Mm-hmm. So she's lost her sister. That's a devastating loss. She's coming to terms with that. When I first watched this, though. My thought, because I watched the episodes very quickly, back to back to back, mm-hmm. so I had very freshly in mind the perceived uh, attraction of Andromeda to to Dylan to mm-hmm. reflect on. And so a- as I'm seeing her wrestle with this, my thought is, is perhaps she's wrestling with what would be the consequences of if I initiated a, a relationship with Dylan mm-hmm. or tried to initiate a relationship with him that was beyond, you know, standard protocol. Right. So I'm wondering, uh, is that what she's referring to when she says, I've seen what love can do? Or is she just reflecting on her love for family, for for the sistership? Well, part of it, it, Rev asks her a direct yes or no question. She did not answer the question. True. Um, She did give an answer. She said, he, he asked her, have you ever been in love? And she said... I've seen what love can do. Mm-hmm. So she didn't actually answer the question. Right. And I, I, well, I think what she's doing there is she's, 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 
she's shifting the focus off of her and going back to what she just saw, what happened with her sister, and then probably thinking about or reflecting on what that sort of a situation could mean for her if she was allowed, if she allowed herself to take that step yeah. with Dylan, if Dylan would allow it, which I really think Dylan would not. Right. And I agree with you. I, that That's, I think, is what happened. Mm-hmm. It just, it seems like, considering my first watch through this was so quick, mm-hmm. and, and the Dylan relationship was what I thought it was talking about. Now, having spaced it out, you're right. They have become much more subtle, or they, they've gone away completely of of uh, indicating that there could be a relationship between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And so now sitting there watching it, I'm thinking, well, it does feel a lot more like she would just be reflecting on the the family situation uh, and, and losing the sister. But yeah, I think there is probably a little bit of both of that going on in, in her mind. So here's something that I'm not quite clear on. You have, with both of these starships, you have an AI. Both of them are filled with androids. You know, service androids, whatever. Um, But they're also equipped with the Avatar, the ship's Avatar, the ship made flesh. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to discuss on this. Uh, The first one, is there a difference between an android and an AI? Does an android always have an AI, or is the android just an extension of the AI? Because you think about, um, let's go out of this universe for a minute. Um, C-3PO, Data, Norman from Star Trek, the original series. You know, you got all these androids. They are their own self-contained intelligence. Right. They're, They're not, not interfaced with anything. Yeah. Yeah. So what's going on in this universe? Is are these androids are they able to to live apart from some other sort of central AI? Is an android able to be its own central AI? Or do they have to be part of something else? I, I think that's part of the question that we've asked uh, like in uh a rose in a rose in the ashes. Mm-hmm. Uh Rami away from the ship, there's a there's an issue there. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like they aren't designed to function apart. Mm-hmm. That they do have to be interfaced with one another. It, from the outside looking in, that that's kind of the perception that I have about it. Mm-hmm. Is that you couldn't have an android... Well, I mean, in this universe, I guess you could have a, you could have a centrally contained android. But the design specs between the ship and an android are there designed to be in tandem. Mm-hmm. They're joined. That's how I'm seeing it. Okay. And and I, I that makes sense as far as in this particular instance for for Maggie and for Rami. I just wonder if there if there are other androids that are able to have their own AIs and 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 live free of of some other uh larger intelligence. As of yet we haven't seen it. But I think we'll I think we'll probably come back to this conversation okay a time or two more okay probably before the season wraps up yeah we're I, well, I said when we first started this this show I was like you, you, the conversations that we're going to have about Rami and artificial intelligence never they're, ending they're they're going to go on and on and on <laughs> yeah um, which brings me to my second point let's think about for a second 
Okay, we have on the Andromeda, we have Rami, the ship's avatar, the ship made flesh. Um, on And then on the, the Magellanic, we have Maggie, who's now calling herself Jill. She's also the ship's avatar, the ship made flesh. And evidently, this this Maggie, I guess she's changed herself, right? She changed her avatar? Well, apparently she had to give herself life signs. Of some sort. Yeah. Because everybody assumed that she was alive. Mm-hmm. I assume they were all donating DNA for Rev to study mm-hmm. on the ship. So, yeah, she's done something to uh, to, to the android mm-hmm. to indicate that it's alive. But in all of the flashbacks, it's evident that Captain Warwick is involved with a very human-like um, android. Yeah. Okay. But, but So then we're, we're to understand that... This has been part of the arrangement. This has been part of the ship. This avatar. This very human-like android. Yeah. And that's normal. As far as we can tell from from the flashbacks and everything that we know about what goes on in the Magellanic. This is what happens on high guard ships. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the flexies in To Loose the Fateful Lightning that Harper found. Had the recipe. Yeah. Yeah. My question is, why did the Andromeda not have a shipped avatar when this series began? I, this is a question I wanted to ask uh-huh. when it, from the first time I weren't, yeah, in preparation for this episode. The first time I went back and watched it is, yeah, uh, where has Rami been mm-hmm. for the ship's life? For her to be such an important and integral part, as we've learned so far... The ship has trouble functioning without her. Why has she not been here Yeah, the whole time? Why, why did the Andromeda not get an avatar? Yeah, and there would be, I guess, all kinds of speculation you could have about that. Um, I know we're going to get flashbacks into uh, Andromeda's past, in, in past commanders that have been on board. It didn't seem like that she had a in-flesh in avatar or a, yeah, avatar. Uh, present mm-hmm. on the ship at that time, she was, she was just a hologram, just a hologram on the on the screen. Um, yeah, so this is obviously something that's done on these ships. Why is she not there? Mm-hmm. I mean, you could try to retcon if if they if there had been an avatar, say in the the pilot and the subsequent uh, concluding episode to it, you could have said maybe something happened in the attack, or maybe something happened. In the time dilation, for some reason, that avatar was lost, and then you could make sense for why Harper had to build a new one. Right. Um, for for continuity's sake, yeah, you have to assume that it's something like that yeah. that's happened. Because here's the thing. Now, all of a sudden, you, what, I, what I get the feeling happened is the, the writers for this episode probably took a look at you know, the, the ship's avatar and said, well, this would be a great vehicle for telling a story. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, the, the avatar falls in love with the captain and then, you know, everything that's, that happens since now, now you've got the, the broken ship. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with doing that is, is yeah, it raises this exact question. You know, uh, the, the show's developer obviously had a, a story arc in which you bring the, you bring the android on after you've already been introduced to all the characters. Now mm-hmm. you have another character. To, and, you know, so the third episode, here it is. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it really it does raise some some interesting questions yeah. about why the show was developed the way it was, and then and then where this episode fits in what it says about how things function on right. the ship. Yeah, and you you just said that it's something that you've been wanting to ask because both of I've seen the entire series. You've seen about halfway into the second season. And yeah, this is something that I've been I've been waiting for these episodes when we have these other ships, these other high guard ships with with a ship in the flesh avatar because I wanted to ask this question. Why is it that these other high guard ships have this and the Andromeda didn't? Didn't. We yeah. can't I I said, you know, if we went back and retconned and you said, yeah, for continuity, we have to assume that, but we can't because we saw those first two episodes and there was no Rami. Right. And we never, I should. We very rarely go out of the timeline and talk ahead. Um, but you, you already said that we. There's a future episode where there's flashbacks uh, before Dylan is even in command of the Andromeda, and there is no Avatar. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. This is a problem for me. Yeah. No, and 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 you know better than I do. We probably don't get a a reasonable solution to this not that i can recall i mean we're watching all of these all the way through in much more depth than i had ever watched in the first time so yeah. maybe i can't say we don't ever get an answer maybe we do and i missed it okay because uh, i know i missed stuff it just this is the 12th episode that we reviewed and i'm catching tons of stuff that i never caught the first time around yeah so okay so we'll, we'll put a pin on that when yeah. we do our yeah. show wrap at the end of the fifth season mm -hmm. we'll let's let's Take a look back at this and see what if we have anything to to hang our hat on, so to speak, uh, with regard to this uh, this particular point of discussion. One thing we did learn in this episode that we have not heard before, I believe it's this episode where we learned that Tarn Vedra is cut off from the rest of the, the galaxies, right? Yeah i I don't know if we remember learning that any time before. Um, there was one a couple of episodes ago, and we were actually discussing that, that that Tarn Vedra had been cut off, and then we started talking about, do we actually know that from the show at this point in our viewing? And we, we couldn't decide for sure if we knew that or not. No, but I heard it in this yeah. episode, and I'm like, well, this is. This yeah. is it. We know right from this point that, that Tarn Vedra is a... It's apparently a wonderful place, mm -hmm. and Dylan holds it very in very high regard, born there, raised mm -hmm. there. He loves it. Uh, but... Uh, it's cut off. Mm -hmm. Can't get there. <laughs> right. And, you know, evidently all of the values and ideals held by the Commonwealth originate from Tarn Vedra. Is what, what we, it sounds like. Is what we learn about Tarn Vedra yeah. in this episode. And for for some reason or another, after the war, it's cut off from Slipstream. It's lost. They don't know how to get to Tarn Vedra now. Yeah. So that's sad. Not as sad as the fate probably for Herodotus in this episode that, you know, it, it went all Alderaan on him. <laughs> yeah, my thought exactly on that. <laughs> Millions of voices cried out in terror, but there was only an android to hear it. Yeah. Um, something that I thought was very interesting is androids are smart, right? I mean, they're... In everything we see in sci-fi, androids are supposed to be superior in... In, in strength and intelligence to humans, even genetically enhanced humans, right? 
for the most part. Yeah. So these these androids are smart, especially with with Jill to be able to put together this crew of androids, and then they all work together. They have enough intelligence. When the crew of the Andromeda steps onto their ship, they're completely fooled. Looking back at this, though, you kind of got to wonder why. As I'm watching this, pretending like we don't know that they're androids, okay, there's still questions that arise that you would think got to come up. Okay, obviously there's their eternal youth. They just barely kind of start to talk about that. It doesn't really seem to be a huge deal. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. It seems like they would have made a lot bigger deal about this. You know, it was just like, hey, you guys are alive and you're still young. Cool. See if we can figure out why that is, you know? <laughs> Rev, <laughs> decipher their DNA right quick. <laughs> and, and then there's other things like um, I have in my notes, wow, high guard structure after 300 years. I mean, you get a group of people and keep them together for a lengthy amount of time. Doing and- the same job. Every day. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to imagine, okay, they know that the Commonwealth is gone. They're just a bunch of people on a ship. Stranded. I, I have a hard time believing that they're going to keep this structure to them and be all military and high guard for as as structured as they were. I mean, when Dylan comes on deck, I mean, that ensign, he's got everything ready for him. Mm-hmm. I got to th- I, I I don't know. I think they're going to start to get a little lazy after 300 years. Yeah, you would think. But no, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. I I think this is interesting um it's cuz if this was a Star Trek episode and it was Kirk or Picard that walked onto the ship, they'd be asking questions right away. Mm-hmm. They'd be suspicious right away. You've been here for 300 years, nothing's changed? Mm-hmm. Seriously? You know. Uh but yeah, the for for Dylan, this is this is a flashback to, to everything he knows. He's just happy to see it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I think for, for Becca and perhaps even Harper, for them, this is... Maybe they don't say anything to Dylan, and they don't on screen. But for them, they, it almost looks like... Mm-hmm. You're looking around and you're wondering, you know, what's the story with these people? I mean, mm-hmm. for instance, my question is, why did the ship eject the, the core? I mean, it, we know it couldn't navigate slip, slipstream anyway, and it's, for all intents and purposes, it's by itself, except for its you know created androids. Mm-hmm. Why did it eject the core mm-hmm. and then seal up the the engine room? Yeah, I mean, it seems like a very unusual thing for an and for an AI to decide to do to itself. You mm-hmm. know, because <laughs> you think the power core, it's at least have it for power generation. Mm-hmm. So for Harper to walk in and say well, your engine core is gone, <laughs> you know this this is kind of an important part of the of the ship. Mm-hmm. It would have to be forcibly eject. For him, it just seems like this whole situation is unusual. Yeah. You got this guy Dutch twirling a, a hydrospanner or whatever it is, shocking Harper with it, you know, and, <laughs> and goofing off. For him, this is just all of this is weird, mm-hmm. you know. And you got to think for the crew that was. Shame on them for not saying something to Dylan earlier yeah. rather than later. Leave it to Tear to to be the one to rain on the parade. Right, but even even beyond that, it just seemed like there were still there were there were questions that that needed to be answered. Um, okay, forget about the slipstream drive being gone. Forget about the fact that they are all um, eternally youthful. 
how are they sustaining life on this ship? Uh, who 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 are their suppliers? Why do they still have Antares cow pies or whatever that was? That they... <laughs> yeah, I mean, why do I... they why do they have that stuff? How how are they getting food? How are they getting clothes? How are they getting yeah. all of these things? Yeah. Do in this universe do we have food replicators? Don't know. I, you know, I mean, I mean, it's just there's just so many things you gotta you gotta walk on this ship, and I was like, none of none of this makes sense. Yeah. Until you find out that they're all androids. Right. You know. But I, and I mean that's the point. Yeah, you would have all these questions, all these red flags that should have gone up. Uh huh. To where it should have immediately set the crew off. Yeah. And and Dylan especially. Yeah. But yeah, because they're all androids and we find out relatively quick that they are. Yeah. Well, I mean, usually when you have people that are heroes of the show in any show, it doesn't take some huge red flag. It's always this very small thing. It's like, wait a minute. I know no one else caught that, but Data just used a contraction. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> it, it, uh, it's just, it's a little difficult for me that none of our heroes caught on to this, except for Tyr, who catches everything. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Tyr might be the smartest one on this in this crew. He, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, he heard the servo motors from the very get-go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Something else that came up again in this episode is is AI and whether or not AI or no, not whether or not. I mean, in this, in this episode, this universe, it's assumed that it is AI is living. It's, it has just as much value as any other human, any other human or, uh, or other biological life form. And, you know, it's just a discussion that we can just have over and over and over again. Yeah, and, and I think you, you alluded to it before. We are going to continue to have this discussion because mm-hmm. I think that's the nature of the show. Mm-hmm. The nature of the show is to, to to help explore the boundaries of what it means to be human and and, and also the things that we could possibly create going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is – the show is predicated or based on, you know, what humanity has been able to do 3,000 years in the future. Isn't that the point of science fiction? Is considering the boundaries of what life is. Yeah, largely. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, in, in a large part of what the show does is take what humanity has done 3,000 years in the future and, and, and examines it and looks at it and, and kind of pushes the boundaries on what life is and, and what you can create and, and then the the issues that come up. And, and here we have issues being discussed. What mm-hmm. happens if an android and a, and a ship captain uh, become romantically involved? What what could possibly happen? Well, we saw what happened here. In this case, it wasn't uh, necessarily a happy ending. Mm-hmm. That That is what science fiction is. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it only seems right that we are going to continue to have this discussion going forward in this show. And I'm, I'm sure we'll have many more discussions about, is Rami alive? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, does she, in fact, have a soul? But yeah, uh, here it is. Is an AI alive? And the feeling, my gut is... It acts like it's alive. Mm-hmm. It makes decisions like a real life person would do. It, I, I, I want to say it feels, but <laughs> yeah, here's the crux of the of the, of the discussion. Does yeah. it feel the same way a human does? Because 
Jill or, or Maggie doesn't know. It, it it knows that it's feeling these things, but it's, it doesn't act like it, it doesn't seem to know what to do with its feelings. Mm-hmm. There is no code that tells her how to live her life going forward. And so 300 years later, she's parked herself over the remnants of the planet that she destroyed where her love died and doesn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's the lesson that we're supposed to take away from this is a living thing moves on with its life. And this AI cannot. Mm -hmm. We're not the only ones having this discussion, though. This discussion is, is also in this episode. I mean, because you got the the two different sides of it. You've got Rami on one side, and you've got Tyr on the other side, and then the other people are caught in the middle. Um, Tyr says, I can't believe we're risking all of this over just a machine, you know, basically is how he views it. It's just a machine. Becca steps in for Rami and says, no, it's family. Okay, so not only are we saying that... Artificial intelligence is alive, but it's also family. It is it is that real to them. And and maybe it is that real to them, to Becca, uh, possibly Dylan, maybe the way he feels about Rami. He's, she's family. I'm sure Harper feels that way about Rami. But we don't know, what we can't know, is how does Rami feel about that yeah you know and you you touched on that already but you know that's the thing that we can't know because we're not artificial intelligence yeah but i think we kind of get a glimpse into it i mean rami is sitting there she's sad she knows that she feels Mm -hmm. but she doesn't know how to she doesn't know what to do with it she has tear ducts but she doesn't know how to use them Mm -hmm. you know there, there are gaps in her ability to express herself and uh-huh. to live and she doesn't know how to deal with it and that's the the point that I was trying to make before the Pax Magellanic did not know how to deal yeah. with the loss of of a love and, and, and did it really fall in love or was it just following some sort of code or programming see that that there that kind of I, I can't imagine that there would be any programming that would allow a ship's artificial intelligence to fall in love with anyone, you know? Um, So for that part of the argument says that they are independent. They are um, alive and feeling and thinking. This is dumbing it down quite a bit, but you talk about Rami crying. Um, You talk about the way that Maggie displays her emotion for her lost love. I have a pet wolf on Minecraft that I locked in the chicken coop accidentally. Well, it was looking up at me and whimpering and whining. Is that wolf alive? I don't give any second thought to that wolf being alive. But it's programmed to to act that way. I guess to get my attention, so I'll feed it. Yeah. (laughs) But see, here it is. You're taking... You have empathy. I do, yes. And you can project that onto a, another creature. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that helps you to interact with it in a way that's that's beneficial. Right. Or can be beneficial. 
So you have empathy for it. You're able to, to, to project feelings onto an inanimate object. It is, it is an unthinking, unfeeling. It's programmed to do things a certain way. Mm-hmm. The problem with an artificial intelligence is that it is able to make decisions on its own and to emulate human behavior. And, and somewhere along the line, these AIs that we're dealing with, Andromeda and the Pax Magellanic, somewhere along the line, these AIs have sentience. They have feelings. Or are they programmed to emulate those? Yeah, that is the, that is the, the question that we don't have an answer to. And that's a very important question because then it becomes a, yes, they are alive, or no, they're programmed by someone else to act like they're alive. Is that all – is that the only touchstone that we have, though, is is whether something can feel or love in order for it to be called living? Well, according be- to Rev Mim, that's his definition of being alive or having a soul, anyway. Okay. Um, I'm going to take it back out of universe again. Okay, let's go back to Data. Data, for the most time, most of the time that we know him, he does not have any emotion. It's not built into him. Do they consider him to be living? Well, I believe they did have an issue in which they directly uh, dealt with that situation. Okay. And they, in fact, ruled that he has free will and therefore is, is treated as a sentient living thing. Okay. Or so, wait, well, you know what? I don't know that they classified him as living. Well, I have to go back and watch that episode now. Uh, they classified him as being sentient. Okay. And and so therefore he had certain rights. He had free will, and if he wanted to stay aboard the Enterprise, that was his right. They could Starfleet couldn't order him to to be dismantled in, in order to advance android science. So something could be sentient and not living. I, from what I remember the episode, I think that's what it came down to. Because I know things can be living and not sentient. True. So sentient isn't necessarily alive. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. So then basically what that answered was nothing. We still don't We don't have an answer. This. No. no right. And I don't know if we ever will. Yeah. And I know that we're going to keep having this discussion because Rami is such an important part of this story and she continues to if she continues to evolve in her her personality throughout the rest of this series as she already has just in the first 12 episodes yeah we we got a lot of discussion to do so you know what why don't we just table let's table that and let's let's save it for another day and for now let's just contemplate this thought if hope is the engine of the soul then duty is the navigator and love is the fuel. That's our quote for this episode. It's a High Guard Supreme Commander, Sani Nax Rafati. And that's taken from a uh, Persuasions and Exhortations, Commonwealth Year 4279. Kind of an interesting remark out of a military type, I thought. But, I mean, it, it, as far as this quote goes, I mean, this sounds like a... An illustration that my twelve-year-old son would <laughs> would dream of, you know, uh, it, it puts things very simply, very succinctly, um, in reflecting on our uh, our previous discussion. Um, it's it's not an indicator someone's alive, you know. Mm-hmm. An AI can have hope, or can it? If it's programmed to, it can. Yeah. <laughs> 
the Pax Magellanic didn't have any hope. No. Does does Rami carry any hope of, toward anything? Uh, you got to think she does because I mean the she's, rebuilding of the Commonwealth. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's hope there. Uh, duty certainly, and AI can perform its duties. That's how it gets through life. Mm-hmm. Love is the fuel, and I guess that's what we get out of this. The Pax Magellanic lost love, and it lost its desire to to go anywhere, to do anything, to mm-hmm. be anything other than what it had. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. Why didn't it create an android of Captain Warwick? Because Captain Warwick ordered her destruction. It wasn't just a lost love in the sense that she she loved and then she lost him because he died. She lost a sense of self. Yeah. He, I took, mean, he took that away from her. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was to her. It was more of a betrayal. True. It was it was that kind of it was that hurtful of a loss of love more than just somebody passing. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Now that I've said that out loud, mm-hmm. I, you're right. Uh, so the, it made perfect sense for Warwick to not be there mm-hmm. because yeah, she he was, was the source of her problem. She was mad. Yeah. She was mad at him. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's evident because she made androids of all of her favorite crew members and he was not among them. Yeah. So. So so I, I guess that is kind of cool. This this saying in conjunction with what we see this ship go through. Mm-hmm. Um, it illustrates what this ship is dealing with uh, mm-hmm. pr- pretty well. <laughs> An engine, uh, navigation, fuel, uh, put it in uh, terms of machinery and mechanics, yeah. mm-hmm. and it, it goes very well with this episode. Yeah, I, I think you pretty much nailed it. I don't, have, I don't have too much more to add to that, really. Like you say, it's just all, it's all just part of the engine. And, uh, you know, something's got to drive an engine. And I think Dylan... Uh, his engine is running just tip top because you, you could, I, I think you could, you could substitute the word love for passion. And I think that describes Dylan to a T. Yeah. Um, his, his duty is to restore the Commonwealth. And so that is what that's, that's, that's being his navigator and telling him where to go, but it's his passion or his love for, for that, that way of life. For that institution, that's that's driving him. Yeah. And if he didn't have that, there's no way that that engine could run. So I I think this this quote makes a lot of sense, obviously for the Magellanic, but I think it makes a lot of sense for uh, for Dylan and this crew, and really what this entire series is about. Yeah. And not just this episode specifically. No, that's very well put. I, I would agree with that. But let's let's go back just. Forget about the whole series. Just bring it back just to this episode. What are your thoughts on this episode? Just how does it hold up? What are your your overall feelings on it? Well, over the course of this this conversation, I mean, I thought this was an episode that I kind of liked. But as we've gotten into the meat of the discussion, I've realized I, I have some issues with this episode that really prevent me from saying it's, it's, a, it's a good episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the questions raised about the androids how they function, why Rami didn't have, why Rami hasn't been there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. In thinking about those things, it's like, yeah, this this really, this episode kind of throws a monkey wrench in, into a lot of the plot that's yeah. been developed over the last 11 episodes before this one comes along. Mm-hmm. And then just the simple, the issues with the, the, andro- the android servo noises 
There's no answer for that. Mm-hmm. They're not there. And then suddenly when you realize they're Androids, it's everywhere. You know, there are things like that that really kind of take me out of the, out of the spirit of, mm-hmm. of the episode. Mm-hmm. It's a good discussion about what an AI is and whether it's alive and whether it isn't in, in, Maybe we don't have an answer. We don't have an answer to that yet. But we've advanced that discussion a little bit further. In, in the case of Andromeda, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interpretive dance of the <laughs> Avatar. That's another thing. Well, you know what? I, 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 I'm kind of mixed on it. Overall, I don't really particularly care for this episode, I guess is what we're coming down to. There's enough things in it that, that make me not like the episode all that much. Mm-hmm. I like the heart of the discussion, but I think that's, you know, that's the only thing that I really can can take away from it. Dylan misses a lot of the details in this. He's blinded mm-hmm. by by duty and by spit and polish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crew doesn't call him out on it in in the moment. It isn't until later when Tyr hears the story and then he's able to to talk to Dylan about it. Um. Yeah, there are things about this episode that work and that we like to see in the, the crew coming together. Um, but in, in a lot of ways, I, there's a lot of things that are missed. And, and when I sit here now and think about them, um, you know, I, I, it's not the best episode. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think a, it would be on my short list of, of ones that I would go back in the first season and watch. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's fair. Um I think there are a lot of things in this episode that happen that I think are really neat. Uh, the I like the discussion between Dylan and Becca at the beginning. I think that's something that's probably been a long time coming. We haven't seen that big of conflict between these two uh, separate groups of this crew since D-0. Yeah. you got to know that's going to come back up. They're not just going to just all fuse together just so coherently like... like like it seems that they have been. There's going to be problems. There's going to continue to be problems. So it was nice to see that they're still working through that. Um, I liked a lot of the, like you said, a lot of the aspects as far as um, the AI and learning um, about how how a lot of that is supposed to work or not learning, really. Um, because, you know, it does bring up more questions. and And so that's kind of where things start to to go for me is because as a standalone episode, I think I like this episode a lot. As part of the series, it really muddies the water and it creates so many problems that that I can say I don't think ever really get cleared up. Yeah. And so so as part of the overall story, this is a bad episode. It's one of those things that just kind of, man, why did they do that like that? Yeah. So no, I I I, I, I agree totally with what with everything you just said about. And that. I don't think it's it's any who who would you say wrote this episode? Ashley Edward Miller, Zach Stance. And, okay, I'm not sure if I can fault them necessarily for this as far as the writing because it's it's one of those things that happens in TV when you've got a team full of writers everyone's got their hand on the pen different perspectives and yeah and so it's that's why I, I say I like this as an episode as a standalone yeah. episode yeah there were a lot of things that as screenwriters as script writers they did a really good job with mm-hmm. but then when you try to put it 
in the overall story arc, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, things don't line up. you have problems. Things aren't quite lining up. And, you know, I think that's just, that's probably just a a result of of, uh, too many people. When we had our discussion with Robert Hewitt-Wolf, that was one of the things that he mentioned was that you have too many people in this show that were trying to run things. Yes. And when you have the developer of the show as the head writer, he should be the one running things. Right. But he wasn't. Well, and that's that's brilliant that you would bring that up. Because what happens when you have two captains? We have a ship with two captains. Yeah. There's yeah. differing points of view. Mm-hmm. And we see that front and center for this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if that is, in fact, what's happening behind the scenes <laughs> in the production of the show, then we get an episode exactly like what we have here. Yeah. It doesn't... It's good. And, and you're absolutely right. There were elements of the story. I, I love the fact that we know what class ship Andromeda mm-hmm. is. Yeah. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so for those little details, this is an episode that you probably don't want to miss if you're watching the series. Yeah. But in the grand scheme of things, it. Mm, yeah, I don't care too much. Well, and it. some of the other things that you mentioned were not necessarily writing things; they were more production things, like the servo noises. Yeah, and the sound okay, and okay, stuff. that's cheesy stuff that happens in low budget sci-fi sometimes. True. Okay, um, but for me, I'm I'm trying to focus more on the writing for this because, and don't get me wrong, I love to poke fun at at bad production, but you know, I also don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm. I'm tell I'm saying that these guys told a bad story. Yeah. Because I think they told a great story. I really enjoyed the story. And when I'm watching the episode, I'm really enjoying watching the episode. And it's not until I get out of the episode, step back and try to see how the whole thing fits together, that's when I start having the problems. Yeah. No, I agree. Well, in in your perspective is a little bit different than mine because I haven't gone through the whole series. Right. So for me, I don't have the whole series to reflect on, but the questions that you've raised here, it sounds like we're not going to get an answer to. So I'm probably applying a little bit of your perspective onto mine, and, mm-hmm. and that allows me to say, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't match up. But for me, too, you know, there, there were a lot of the little issues about the episode that, on the whole, I probably won't go back and watch this one. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just not a favorite. Yeah, and I I can't say as strongly that I wouldn't because I did enjoy the episode. I liked the episode. I didn't like what it did to the series. Is all. Well, here here's the thing. It, from what you know, and mm-hmm. from what I've seen so far, it, it raises questions, and it doesn't quite fit. Yeah. And yeah. so for that, I I, I I can't be positive about this episode. Okay. Well, that makes sense. That's fair. But that's what you think. You heard what I think. Now we want to know what our listeners think. So if you have anything that you would like to add, any, uh, any opinions that you would like to weigh in on the matter, Ethan, how can people get a hold of us? That would be drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on social media, Twitter and Facebook. At AndromedaPod is our handle both of those places. Our home is on Podbean. We're www.andromedaseries.podbean.com. You can also pick us up on iTunes. Yeah, you can find us there in the iTunes store. Just search uh, Drive Back the Night under your podcast tab. 
And uh, if you if you do subscribe to us there, be sure and leave us a review. We certainly appreciate it. And don't forget, you can keep up with uh, with watching these episodes with us on the Andromeda TV YouTube channel. And uh, thanks again to our friend Tim Kimmerly, who gives us our quotes at the beginning of each episode. And we are an Age of Geek production. They're www.ageofgeek.com. Ethan, do you hear that? That beating sound. Yeah, that's kind of a thumping it's like a it's almost musical isn't it It sounds like music yeah like a drum it's way off in the distance yeah it's like the music of a distant drum Hmm. you know what meet me back here this time next week we'll talk about it then music of a distant drum all right